you would to Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. It occurred to me as we were, as I was considering the the next passage or uh, subject to consider as we observe the Lord's table, that certainly the subject of faith relates to the atoning work of Christ. It is faith in His atoning work that is necessary, certainly for salvation. In studying the first portion of this uh, chapter, chapter 11, someone actually said that there's an unfortunate chapter division here because of the link to what comes before. And uh, that resonated with me um, because the very end of chapter 10, as he's drawn attention to the work of Christ and the necessity of enduring faith, he says in verse 37, for, in very, for yet in a very little while, this is 1037, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the focus is faith and living by faith and enduring faith. And uh, it's that enduring faith that he is calling his readers to, a faith that endures fixed on Christ, certainly fixed on the truths of the gospel that he's already given an exposition of. I was studying this chapter some time ago, and I realized that as you look through the chapter, some of the illustrations you might say is a, a notable act of faith, a uh, something that the Word of God draws attention to, like Abraham's offering up Isaac, and you would say, wow, what an act of, of faith that was to obey God and to offer up your beloved son to God as he commanded. But there are other things that are done by faith in this chapter that are not as, you might say, uh, momentous. They're not as, you know, picture-worthy as you might expect the Red Sea, the passing through the Red Sea to be a, a momentous event where you have an army following the Israelites and the sea opens up and Israel by faith goes through and God rescues them. Surely we've all seen an artist's rendering of that scene or things like it, these momentous events of faith. But there are, within this chapter, sometimes just simple words that are said by faith. Uh, expectation of some future event, and as the person believes in that by faith, says something or gives a directive to future generations. Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the hall of faith, sort of like the hall of fame. But because of the many notable men, uh, individuals mentioned here, but if you read through the chapter, you realize near the end of the chapter that he really doesn't have time, kind of like when you go to a museum and there's more exhibits to see and you, it's about to close and you can't see everything. In verse 32 in this chapter, he says, And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of? And he starts to mention names, and he starts to mention more things that could be in this uh, discussion. So if this is the Hall of Faith, I think you'd have to say that this is actually just an exhibit or a series of exhibits, but it's not all the possible exhibits that you could look at. Just read through the Bible. You'll see lots more ex exhibitions of faith as God's people place trust in God's Word and live by faith. So the writer here is drawing attention to enduring faith, living by faith, as 
you go through the chapter, you realize that he has organized it around people. I think you could say verse 2 is an organizing kind of statement when he says, for by it, by faith, the men of old gained approval. And then later on in the chapter, down near the end, you kind of have a bookend at verse 39 where it says, and all these having gained approval through their faith. So the beginning and the end, he's talking about these who have gained approval or there was testimony given to their faith. And in the exhibits, if this is a museum, you can see that there's an organization around those who lived before the flood, starting with verse 4, Abel, and then up to verse 7, Noah. And then starting in verse 8, those after the flood and the story of Abraham and Sarah and down to Jacob and Joseph. And in verse 22, you have the ending of that, what we would call the period of the patriarchs. Now, certainly there was centuries beyond the patriarchs before Moses, but then in verse 23, Moses comes into the picture and the Exodus, but then by verse 30, although Joshua is not mentioned, certainly Joshua and the children of Israel went into the land. And then you also have in verse 32, even more judges and kings and prophets. And then beyond the mention of their names is some of the actions or the acts of faith, things that if you read through the Old Testament, you would say that's an act of faith. It even gets into the book of Daniel, shut the mouth of lions, quench the power of fire. Those both took place in the days of Daniel and his friends. And there are some times where you read through the end of the chapter, you're trying to figure out exactly who or what he's talking about. But basically he's saying this is a, this is a full exhibition of the people of God and their faith and what it is to live by faith. And in some ways, there are very momentous things. In other ways, there are very minute things, very small things, but things that still betray faith, trust in God. And it's not merely men, it's women as well. Uh, it starts with Abel and continues with Enoch and Noah and Abraham, but Sarah is also here. Rahab is later in the chapter. So this is for all of us. This is really a chapter that I hope will encourage us in our own faith in the Lord, and certainly to live by faith. What does he say back in verse 38 of chapter 10? But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this is an encouragement not to shrink back, but to sort of like we saying this morning, onward. With God's presence, with his help, as God's children, moving on by faith. And I hope that's our perspective, even as you enter a new year, to live certainly by faith. That's why I encourage you about reading God's word if we're going to live by faith, we have to have something to latch on to. We have to have the words of God to latch on to, to trust in, because they're worthy to be trusted. So as he opens this discussion of faith, or you may say extends the discussion based on the end of chapter 10, he gives a definition of faith or a description of faith in the first few verses here, verses 1 to 3. So the first point, as we look at verses 1 to 3, is faith defined, or you could say faith described. And he has a number of things to say about faith here that I hope will be instructive and helpful for us. The first of which, in verse 1, as he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is he saying? And how is he defining faith? Well, to put it in other words, faith takes possession of what has yet to be or what one cannot see. 
takes possession of what has yet to be and or, and I think you could say and, what one cannot see. Notice he's talking about things not seen, and when he uses the word hope, that's something that has not yet been realized. In the Bible, we have that word faith used in a number of ways. It can refer to a body of doctrine that is worthy to be trusted in, such as we talk about the faith that was once delivered to the saints, earnestly contend for the faith, or in Acts, a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith, or when Paul says, I have kept the faith. Paul had been loyal to the truth of the gospel, the truths of the gospel, you could say. So there's that body of teaching that's worthy to be trusted in. By the way, that's why you could say there's really only one true faith. When you say, when someone says that they're of another faith, well, there's really no other body of teaching that's worthy to be trusted in, but the Word of God. And so that's sometimes how the word faith is used, but it can also be used of a personal trust in God and the truths of His Word. So not the body of teaching, but someone's personal faith or their trust in God and the truths of his word. For instance, when Paul commends Timothy for his sincere faith, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and the faith that also dwelt in his mother uh, Eunice and his grandmother Lois, I believe it is, he's talking about the personal faith of Timothy and his mother and his grandmother. It was their trust in God. Paul was commending it. Even the passage we read in Colossians this morning, Paul is talking about the faith that the Colossians had in the Lord Jesus and the consequent love that they have to all the, had to all the saints. Certainly, he's talking about the knowledge that the Colossians had about Christ in the preaching of the gospel, not only the knowledge that they had, but their agreement or their assent to the truthfulness of what was being said, and then their trusting in or their reliance upon those truths for their salvation. That's saving faith. And we could talk about saving faith. That's not exactly where he's going here, but if you think about Scripture and saving faith, one person defined faith in Christ. This is Spurgeon's Catechism. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is set forth in the gospel. So that's specifically saving faith centered on the gospel. There is an assumption in Hebrews here that these believers, they'd already come to faith, and he's trying to stir them to continue in their trust in what they had already heard. And so he's describing the nature of faith. And he uses an interesting word here as he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You might have a note in your margin where the word substance is used, the substance of things hoped for, as if faith is a thing, there's something hoped for, but there's some present thing that you have if you have faith. And there's differences of opinion about uh, this word, especially because in Hebrews it's used in a couple of different ways. Turn, if you would, back to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, as it's describing the Son of God, the person of Christ, God has spoken through Him, He's made the world through Him. Verse 3, it says, and He is, speaking of the Son, the radiance of His, that would be the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature, and that's the word nature, um, substance, the very essence of a thing, the actual being of a thing, the reality of the thing. So when it comes to the relationship of the Son to the Father, the Son and the Father are persons of the Trinity, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So when the Son, who is God, and the Father, who is God, when the Son came into the world and He declared who the Father was and He lived in this world, we were seeing, and we do see in the Gospels, the exact representation of God. Someone compared it to the impression made by a stamp. So you, you take the stamp and you make the impression. The impression is not the stamp, but it gives the very image of the stamp. And trying to illustrate the relationship between the Father and the Son in that way. But that's one of the words, the word, uh, one of the translations. Turn over to chapter 3 for a moment. Another way that this word assurance is translated is confidence. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end, or if we use the word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, if we hold fast our assurance and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And I think if you were to look at the difference between those two words, I do believe it's that way in which we need to understand the word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you turn back there, We are, if we hold fast our confidence, look at that verse again. Now faith is, could we substitute the word confidence of things hoped for? Faith is confidence in that which is hoped for. That hoped for thing is an event that is yet to be realized, but faith is the confidence that it will be. It's the expectation and based upon the strength of the faith, you could have a weak faith or a stronger faith, but it's still fixed on that thing in the future, but it's present now. I have it now. Faith is the certainty, that assurance that I have, the confidence that I have, that something is going to happen or something that I don't see is real. And that's where we get into the second part of the verse when he says the conviction of things not seen. The evidence someone would uh, give as an alternate translation for that. The proof of something not seen. So we're talking about faith, and we're talking about confidence in what has not yet come to happen, but in the heart and mind of someone who has faith, there's a confidence that it will, and it makes it a present reality. Faith takes hold of that and brings it from the future, you might say, to now, and holds that now, and starts to live in the light of that, that hoped-for thing, or in the case of the end of the verse, that thing that is invisible. And let's think about that for just a moment, that hoped-for thing or that thing that is invisible, and this chapter is filled with that, especially hoped-for things. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for, the confidence in what is hoped for. What faith does is it basically latches hold of something that is yet future, oftentimes based upon the promise of God. I think you say exclusively in this chapter, these are, have to do with things that are promised by God. And because of the certainty of God's words, faith latches hold of that statement and lives in the light of the reality, even, even though the only thing that it's basing its activity on is the promise of it, the, the, the expectation of it based upon what God has said. So what is future in this chapter, if we were to go through the illustrations, and we will look at them later on, some in this message and some in later ones, but what is yet future in this chapter? Well, Noah was warned by God of coming judgment. Had there ever been such a thing? No. 
not in his experience, not in his history, but God said it and Noah believed it. So this future promised judgment was coming and Noah moved with fear, confidence in what God has said, organized his life and even his building plans around that. He was building a house, a floating house for himself and all of the animals based upon God's instruction. But had it come to happen yet? No, it took some time for God's promise to even be revealed, but Noah was living by faith. What about the promised child, Isaac? It's one of the sections that I've been reading in my own Bible reading is with Abraham and Sarah as they are promised a seed and they are wrestling with the wait for Isaac to actually come. You think about what they wrestled with and what they struggled with and the mistakes that they made during that time, but their faith is being challenged. They have this hope based upon what God said. God clarifies that hope. He gives them over the course of time more and more statements and covenant and oath and promise that he is going to do as he said, but their faith is being stretched because it hasn't yet been realized. They're having to trust in what God has promised. Israel is promised an exodus. They are promised a land. There's the promise of victory for those who had to walk around the city of Jericho. And you'd have to, you look at that story, I don't know if you've ever imagined what that would be like to just have the bare promise of God that if you walk around this city in this way for this amount of time, that eventually on, on a particular day, at a particular time, if you follow my instructions, the walls are going to fall down flat. Now, who would believe that? Unless it was God who was saying it and faith that was receiving it, grasping it, taking hold of it, and then obeying what God said. So there's a promised judgment coming. There's a promised child coming. There's a promised exodus out of Egypt. There's a promised land that they would receive, a promised victory in the conquering of that land, and then a future reward, which, as the writer writes here, all of these people are expecting something yet future, right? They're all anticipating something yet future, which would be the fullness of their salvation. And they have to live by faith. That's what they're hoping in. And faith is confidence in that hope. Faith is the assurance of that. One Songwriter Charles Wesley said, Faith mighty, faith the promise sees, and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities, and cries, it shall be done. Abraham looked to God alone, the promise he believed that all the nations would be blessed through Christ the chosen seed. Scripture unveils our highest hope and says that it will be the glory of God shall fill the earth as waters cover the sea. One day we'll gather around the throne, the promises complete, when every language, tongue, and tribe, all nations worship thee. Now, even mixed within that song is a definition of faith. But in addition to the definition of faith, Built into that song are promises that even in Wesley's day and our day have not been realized. Do you hope that one day that this world, this earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord like the water covers the sea? That's what Isaiah said. Do you have a hope, as Revelation says, that there will be those from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lamb for sinners slain? That's, that's presented in Scripture, and you either believe in that or you don't. Do you have confidence in that? Well, who said that? Not just anyone said that. John the Apostle, sent by Christ, said that. 
Isaiah the prophet, sent by God, said that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. Now, faith is the assurance of those things. It's a present possession. And actually, as I think about both of those things, the knowledge of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea, and those from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping the Lord, those things, as I believe in those truths, they give me encouragement now. I don't have to realize that or see that with my eyes. I can see it with the eye of faith now. I can latch hold of that. I can take possession of that now, and it can influence and change my life now. That's what faith is. But it's not only things that are distant in terms of events and time. It's also things present but unseen. Notice that in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The verb seen is in the present tense. So we're talking about something that is presently unobservable to your physical eyes. You can't see it. But it's nonetheless real. And it's capable of being perceived. Now, I say it's not observable. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe if I was in heaven, I would actually see him. And if I had my physical eyes, I wasn't just in my spirit. I could see him with my physical eyes. I could see his physical body. He lives. But I never have. I hope to one day. Why do I believe in him now, though I cannot see him? Because God's word testifies to his existence, and he's worked by his grace in my life not only his existence, but the gospel message. Beyond just Christ, of course, God is invisible. And though there are times at which in Scripture he appears, he withholds the sight of him. Even when he appears sometimes in Scripture, there's a cloud surrounding him so that there's a revelation of his presence, but a guarding of his glory and holiness. But those are only select and occasional times in Scripture according to God's purpose, Aside from that, what does the Scripture say? That God is immortal? He's invisible. That doesn't mean that He can never manifest to a person's eyes His presence, but in terms of His power to remain without us being able to see it, is that's within His power completely. So faith is the evidence of those unseen realities. It is seeing, as someone has said, the unseen. So do you see what is unseen? Do you believe, though you've never seen an angel in the existence of angels? Do you believe, though you've never seen God in the existence of God? There's plenty of evidence that he created this world, that he's eternally God, that he's powerful. If we look at creation, Paul says in Romans 1, the evidence is there, but it does take faith to latch on to those things and conclude, and we'd have to say it takes a gift of God in someone's heart as well, to conclude that yes, God is, that God is the creator of these things, that he has made all these things. So faith as you look at what he says here in Roman or excuse me Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 faith is what takes possession of what has yet to be and what one cannot see and i would just ask you this morning where is your faith where is your faith do you have faith do you realize that faith is commended by god Unbelief is rebuked by God. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus is rebuking either his disciples or people for their unbelief. But faith is commended by God. And here we have a second aspect of the description of faith, and it's in verse 2 where he says, For by it, by faith, the men of old gained approval. The word there, 
is a word that we see in other contexts, elders. And because we have men and women in this chapter, I think if we think in terms of elders or those who are in the past, you might even use the word ancients. They're those who have gone before. Those who have gone before and are older elders, ancients, they, they, they received a testimony and were commended for their faith. By it, the men of old gained approval. That's the uh, translation of a word that means to bear witness. And bearing witness is something I can do, but it also could be something that is done about me. And it's really the latter that is here. It's not that those who are of old who are testifying, it's that they are being testified about, and it's a good thing because they had faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, the widow in the church who is to be taken care of, who is to be put on the list, is the one who has a reputation for good works. There are others who testify about her. It's not her saying it, it's others who are saying it about her, that this is the way that she's lived her life. She's exhibited faith and good works that follow that, and that's the idea. There's a good report about this widow. But in the case of this chapter, there's a good report about these who exercise faith. And that good report certainly is from this passage itself. But how would we even know about these people mentioned? It's because of the Old Testament record of their faith. So the testimony that has been given was either written by Moses or Samuel or whoever the scripture writer was, was giving testimony to their faith and approving of it and saying, this is a good thing. And obviously, it's not just the human writer, it's God himself who is having that written about Moses or Abraham or Sarah or one of the characters that came to my mind as I was thinking about this verse and thinking about the Old Testament was Caleb. Caleb who as he went with the children of Israel towards the promised land and was one of the spies who went into the promised land and came out with a good report. Twelve men went to spy out Canaan, ten were bad and two were good. He was one of the two good. And he said, we need to believe what God has said and go in and conquer the land. We can do this with God's help and based upon his promise. But the ten prevailed and the people's heart melted with fear. And the result of that was that whole generation in the wilderness dies, but not Caleb. In fact, Caleb could say over 40 years later, my strength is not gone. I am the same today as I was back then. I'm ready. And can I please have that country with all the giants? That's faith. Faith in the promise of God, faith that God could do what he promised to do 40 years before, and based upon his present circumstances and his continued faith, and that really is enduring faith, this is someone who exercised faith throughout his life, and God rewarded him because he did give him victory over that portion, and that belonged to Caleb and his descendants. That's a commendation of Caleb. That's why we know about that in Scripture. It's an encouragement, an example for all of us to believe in the promises of God and to go on believing no matter if other people don't believe. Just keep on believing. And certainly these people, these Hebrews that are being written to, had people who they knew who went right back into the system because they couldn't handle the persecution, they couldn't handle the trouble, they couldn't handle the social pressure, and so they just ejected. But there are others, and as the writer of Hebrews writes here, he's encouraging them to continue, to hold fast, to go on. There's a commendation for those who continue to believe. Jesus, in his teaching to the disciples and even his commenting on the faith of those who came to him, he often spoke of faith. He often commended faith. Just in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, when his disciples failed to exercise faith in him through the storm, he said, you of little faith, 
when a woman came to him and persisted in asking him to heal her daughter and would not take no for an answer, persisted in trusting in him and continued to argue with him that he would, that he would take care of and heal her daughter. He said, I have found no such great faith with anyone in Israel, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Jesus was giving attention to her personal faith. Remember when those men brought in the man who was uh, paralyzed and they let him down through the roof? Remember that? And Jesus, when he came down, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. You know what it says right before he said that? It says, seeing their faith. Seeing their faith. Faith can be seen by the actions it produces. Another time when Peter gets on the water by faith, but then starts to sink, he says, you have little faith. And when another time Jesus said to another woman, oh woman, your faith is great. So Jesus paid attention to faith and he pays attention certainly to our faith. And if you had to be judged, I'm not trying to say that we're judged only by this, but judged based upon your faith. Where is your faith? How is your faith being exhibited and shown in your life? Have you ever thought about your own life in terms of your faith? I could ask you the question, do you have faith at all? Some people don't have any faith. They have knowledge, but they've never put their trust truly in Jesus. They've never really found forgiveness of sins, although it's available for all those who put their trust in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's eternal salvation held out on the basis of faith. But if you've already come to faith, if you've never come to faith, I want to invite you to come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. He's worthy to be trusted. He's capable of saving you from your sins and from hell to all eternity. But have you ever thought about your life in terms of your faith? And if you were in this chapter, what could be said of you? What have you said by faith? What have you done by faith? How is your faith exhibited in your daily life, in your personal life, in your family? your relationship with your spouse or your children? How is your faith working itself out? And as I said earlier on, if you look through this chapter, sometimes we see momentous events like Abraham with a knife in his hand and Isaac on the altar, and you would say, here's Abraham exercising his faith. God doesn't always call everyone to exercise faith that way. He did for Abraham. But it, it does get down to even just simple things. In fact, one of the ones that stands out to me, look at verse 22. Come to this and explore it later on, but at least look at it. You've got Abraham on the mountain with Isaac on the altar, but you have Joseph in Egypt as he's about to die. And how is he exhibiting faith? He's talking about the coming exodus of the children of Israel. And he asks that his bones be taken when the children of Israel exit the land, that he not be buried with the other pharaohs or anybody important in the pyramids in Egypt, but that they take his bones and that they bury him in the promised land. That's faith. It's hope. It's looking forward. It's a confidence in what has yet to be. And what is that based upon? If you read back in Genesis, it's based upon what God said to Abraham. It's the covenant that God made with Abraham, where they were going to be strangers in the land, this other land, for 400-some years. And it was certainly by faith that the children of Israel eventually got Joseph's bones, and when they went out in Exodus, took them and eventually buried them. Burying Joseph's bones, an act of faith. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever dug a hole, especially this time of year. It might be challenging to bury somebody. You understand what I'm talking about, though. It's not something complicated, but it's based upon a belief and a trust in the promises of God. What does that look like in your life? What would it be said of you by faith? This is how you lived. By faith, this is what you said. And I'm putting that to you. I'm putting it to myself. We need to live by faith. The just or the righteous live by faith. The alternative is, I was reading uh, a couple of sermons this week by Thomas Manton, where he was talking about the difference between living by faith and what's the alternative? Living by sense. Living by what's near, what I can see alone. And this is part of our problem when we face temptation. We're not thinking of the eternal or spiritual realities. We're thinking only about what's going to gratify me. Well, things I can see, not thinking about the blessing of God or the presence of God or those things that I can't see. I'm only thinking about what my eyes can see. We're so short-sighted. We don't live by faith. We don't see what is unseen. And so we fall and we fail. We sin. But we are strengthened even in temptation when we take God's word and we meditate upon the truth of God. And when that temptation comes, rather than succumbing to that temptation, which is so near, which we can see, instead we put our trust in the word of God, that, that truth of God, that promise of God. And we latch hold of that and we believe that and we live according to that instead of what our own lust desires. And that's faith. That's faith in the midst of temptation. There are lots of ways to apply faith, but how has your faith exhibited itself? If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, this is one other way in which he describes faith. And I put it this way, faith enables us to understand what is beyond our ability to personally witness. Look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Faith enables us to understand what is beyond our ability to personally witness. Um. Isn't it our natural inclination to say something like, if I see it, I'll believe it? That was, that was Thomas's requirement or expectation, right? I, I won't believe unless I see. I got to see it. But many have quoted, even on this text or alluded to Augustine's statement, Believe so that you may understand, and certainly believe in order that you might know, that there's certain knowledge that comes to us by faith in the Word of God and in no other way. There was no human being that witnessed the days of creation before Adam and Eve. Nobody was there. The angels might have beheld it. The sons of God shouted for joy. We don't exactly know when they were created. My inclination, based on what's revealed in Scripture, is they also were created, but we don't know when during that week. But regardless, there was no human being who was there. So how do we understand the creation of the world? In fact, the way he puts it here. For by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What is invisible? The word of God. That's what prepared or brought into existence the things that we see. What we see was brought into existence by a God who said, let there be light and there was light. This is word which you cannot see, which was brought into existence. We can see the record of his word. 
What does faith, Matthew Henry, say, give us to understand concerning the worlds? He answers the question with five points. What does faith give us to understand concerning the worlds? Number one, that these worlds were not eternal, nor did they produce themselves, but they were made by another. So we're talking about the universe, the ages, and everything in them God create, created. He prepared. Matthew Henry is saying these worlds are not eternal. That contradicts modern thinking about this universe, that somehow the universe is eternal. It's not. God is eternal. Secondly, he said that the maker of the worlds is God. He is the maker of all things, and whoever is so must be God. Thirdly, that he made the world with great exactness. It was a framed work. He's playing on the word there, prepared. Like when you frame something up and you're being very careful about the measurements, when God created this world, it was very precise. Let's think about even our solar system and how things are set in such a way that if something gets out of kilter, it'd be chaos, disaster. What did, how did God do that? He just hung the world on. You know, we, we, we think about gravity and the relationship to the other planets and the sun, but God hangs the world on nothing, and he just sets it out there, causes it to spin. Amazing. Fourthly, he said that God made the world by his word, that is, by his essential wisdom and eternal son, and by his active will, saying, let it be done, and it was done. And then lastly, he says that the world was thus framed out of nothing, out of no preexistent matter, contrary to the received maxim that out of nothing, nothing can be made. No, God can bring into existence something by the power of his word. And he did. And if you don't believe that, someone said you're not going to even understand the first page of Scripture. You have to believe in order to understand. Homer Kent, in his commentary on Hebrews, says the author reminds his readers that faith is absolutely necessary if we are to understand even the first page of Scripture. Men may speculate about origins, but no one has firsthand knowledge. If man is ever to know what really happened, he is utterly dependent upon God to reveal it. Then when God does reveal it, man's response must be one of faith if he is to understand. And of course... John chapter 1 as well. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Same was in the beginning, or He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's square one. That is true. Faith latches hold of that and obtains knowledge of what is true because God said it, and God is true. And the psalmist did. He said, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I'm just, it is a blessing to believe that God created me. If I believed that I was not created, but I came into existence through some kind of chance, and that there are no laws, that there's really nothing that orders this universe, I mean, I don't know how I would exist except despair. No heaven. No expectation of ages to come with the exceeding riches of his kindness in us toward, uh, towards us in Christ Jesus, but only the expectation that when I die, that's it. There's no hope there. There's no joy there. There's no gladness there. 
And I'm not just saying based on, I want to have happiness and so I believe in God. No, God spoke. And God is. Without getting into all the illustrations, verse 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. We are to spell that out. Those who seek him, how? Hebrews would say, through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that you're going to find your way into the presence of God is to go after the forerunner in the way that God demands. And that is by faith in his blood shed for your sins. It's the only way. Are you trusting in that? We're beginning to see faith's definition, Lord willing, the next time we look at this, we'll see faith's illustration. You can read through the chapter and see it, and I trust be blessed by as you think about how people exhibited or demonstrated their faith, and what encouraged me as I read through this chapter is in part, not that I wouldn't want to be like Abraham in the sense of his exploits of faith, the things that he did by faith, leaving his native land and so forth, but I can take comfort and encouragement that God may not have called me to those kinds of exhibitions of faith, but he has called me to a life of faith. And sometimes that just is worked out day by day as I talk with my family, my church family, as I live my life. There are demonstrations of faith that I'm living out, that you're living out. And with God's help, by His grace, we can do that. And we can endure in that as He gives us strength by His Word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we contemplate what Your Word teaches us we meditate upon it. Bring the fruit of that meditation by your Spirit into our lives. And we know that it's not ultimately even our thinking about it. It's what you enlighten us, give us understanding of. We pray, Lord, that your word today as it is food for us, would not only sustain us, but strengthen us. Even as we partake of this table, help us to do so by faith, believing the revelation that you've given concerning it, that it is a way to remember our Lord. It is a way to commune with you, Lord, and with one another as we gather together and spend time together remembering what you did for us, Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.